Well, good morning once again, everyone. If you'd like to open your Bibles or your corner posts to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading from verse 11 through to the end of the book, uh, to chapter 13, verse 14. If you're new or you're visiting with us this morning, first of all, a warm welcome. It's great to have you here. Um, but secondly, an explanation. Uh, we've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, as is our custom, um, to preach through the Bible so that we can hear God's agenda for us through his word. Uh, and today we come to the very final section. I'm going to be reading from verse 1, and this is God's word. Sorry, not verse 1, verse 11. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as you want me to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. 
On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. Yet, by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now, we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, what a great joy it is to be able to come together this Lord's Day to worship you and honour you. Father, what a great joy it is to be able to meet with your saints, to be able to praise your name, to be able to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit now and that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Father, please bless the preparation that I've done that, um, Lord, it might be helpful to, for those who listen, that they'll be impacted, we'll all be impacted by the truth of your word, Lord, that we'll know you better, but that most of all, Father, we would know how much we are loved in Christ. And that in response, we would love others. Father, we commit this time into your hands and we ask for your blessing. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best, I think, but also most sobering podcasts that you can listen to at the moment is the one produced by Christianity Today, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill.
It follows the meteoric rise of Mark Driscoll uh, and his church in Seattle, as well as its spectacular fall. It's really hard to listen to at times uh, because it's like uh, watching a car crash. You know, you know you shouldn't look. You know you should respect people's privacy um, in those times of situations of enormous grief. But there's something about it, isn't it, of human nature where you can't look away. There's a similar kind of guilty pleasure in analysing the tragedy of somebody who's fallen in ministry. Maybe it's self-righteousness and pride, a sense that someone more famous and more successful than ourselves has been brought low. But for many people, Mark Driscoll was the epitome of what is often called triumphalism. He gave off the sense that he was doing everything so much better than everybody else. That in comparison, everybody else is kind of a little stupid. And so when he fell, people felt vindicated and somewhat justified to delight in it. Don Carson talks about this kind of leadership in his book on 2 Corinthians, from triumphalism to maturity. And it's an examination of the final four chapters of 2 Corinthians, which we've just looked at. You see, it's an ever-present danger for any Christian leader and what they are faced with, to be puffed up with pride rather than to be motivated by love. To be puffed up with pride rather than motivated by love, especially when things are going well. As you'll see from your outlines, I've divided this final section of Paul's letter into seven points. And they all revolve around the big idea of loving leadership. And that's really important because this should be really the defining characteristic of any leader. Especially though in the church, it's love. For it doesn't matter how well uh, the teaching elder understands the Bible or how skilled he might be in pastoral leadership, if the leader, and can I say this applies true whether it's politics or whether it's leadership or whether it's business, isn't it? If the leader is not loving, then they are nothing. What does that look like in practice? Well, let's dig into the final part of Paul's letter to the two Corinthians uh, and or, or to the Corinthians and find out. The first thing is that uh, we find that love never gives up, but love always pursues. Paul had endured all kinds of difficulties and conflicts with the believers at Corinth. Uh, and many of them had sided with the so-called super apostles. And they had basically rejected God's apostle here in the apostle Paul. How painful that must have been for the apostle Paul. But he never gave up on them and was even prepared to look like a fool through the satirical boasting that he does in chapter 11, which we looked at last week. And sadly, those who should have been defending him to the super apostles were actually agreeing with his opponents. He wasn't inferior to the so-called super apostles, but the Corinthians agreed that he was. 
the Lord himself had confirmed the authenticity of Paul's apostleship through all kinds of supernatural signs and wonders and miracles. Um, For example, if you're taking notes, you can jot down Acts chapter 19. We're told this, when the Apostle Paul was in Corinth, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Paul could perform an exorcism simply by the things that he had touched, a handkerchief out of his pocket, it could be transferred to somebody else. Such was the anointing of God on the Apostle Paul. Somebody else could touch that and the evil spirit would leave. That's a sign that this was God's appointed man. Much like the prophet Elisha that we read from in 2 Kings 13. The Lord was with Paul in a really powerful way. Remember Elisha is there, he's anointed by God's spirit. Elisha also does all kinds of great signs and wonders. And after Elisha has died, his bones are, are there in this crypt. Somebody's other, another body is thrown in in haste, comes to life again. Such was the anointing of God on his servant. As we saw last week, though, at the centre of any loving leadership, though, is an awareness of one's weakness rather than boasting in one's power. A profound other person-centeredness that doesn't think about oneself but about the well-being of others. What's amazing about the Apostle Paul, then, is that He continued to pursue them even when the Corinthians had rejected him. Paul continued to pursue them even when they had rejected him. As he says in verse 13, How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? You see, Paul relentlessly pursued the Corinthian Christians in love. He never gave up on them. And the only way that he was a burden to them, if you could call it that, is that he offered his ministry to them free of charge. Now, that might seem like a strange thing for people to reject. Imagine, you know, a minister coming in and going, don't worry, I won't take the stipend that the presbyteries agreed to. I'll just offer my services free of charge. You don't think what a gift from heaven. But it seems like the false teachers were saying that Paul had done this to trick them into trusting him. They twisted what Paul had done and tempted the Corinthians into questioning his motives. The truth, though, is that loving leadership gives. Loving leadership gives. One of the most grievous sins I think, I think a pastor and in particular, in particular can commit is greed. And it's one of the things Paul says in, two, in uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, false teachers all have in common, is greed. To take what rightly belongs to the people of God and keep it for themselves. That was really the sin of Judas, wasn't it? Sin, he sinned by taking from the money bag, which provided for all their resources, and he kept it for himself. Because the gospel is all about what Christ has freely given to us. 
It's the free offer of salvation that was purchased for us in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so to be greedy, to steal from the people of God, is really an abomination. I heard of a minister once who said to the congregation he was serving that he wouldn't remain unless they would help him purchase a house. He wasn't content to simply rent a house in the area. He had to be given the ability to buy. And so he guilted people into financially assisting him into buying his own home. That's the opposite of what loving leadership looks like. Loving leadership pursues. Loving leadership gives. What the Apostle Paul said and demonstrated, though, was that he was never a burden to them because it wasn't their possessions he wanted. It was something infinitely more valuable. It was themselves. When Paul gives his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he makes this really important point. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Not only did he not steal from them, he didn't even covet it. That's significant. Because what motivated Paul was not what he could get from the Corinthians, but rather what he could give to the Corinthians. Paul saw his leadership of the Corinthians like a love that a parent has for their child. He was gladly, constantly shelling out for their welfare. Everyone who's a parent right now knows exactly what this means. Sometimes the requests for time or money are so frequent that you can feel a little bit like an ATM machine. But you gladly do it because you love your child. You want them to be happy. You want them to be blessed. And as a loving leader of God's people, Paul does exactly the same thing. He wants the Corinthians to grow and blossom as followers of Christ. And he'll do everything to make that happen. And not only did Paul do this, but his fellow worker, worker Titus did this as well. Both of them acted in the same spirit and they followed the same course. A pattern of loving leadership we've constantly sought to give more than it received. To bless rather than to take. Not only does it pursue and give though, but loving leadership also builds. Just take a look again at what Paul says at the end of verse 19. Because even when Paul is responding to their criticisms, it's not out of personal insecurity or defensiveness, but so as to seek to build them up. Paul says in verse 19, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. What an incredible thing to say. Could you say that? Could I? That every time we speak, it is to build others up, to strengthen them in their faith especially when they are personally criticising us for our various faults or shortcomings. Fourth, loving leadership mourns. I was reading this really great commentary on the book of 1 Samuel once, and I was especially struck by, remember how Samuel continued to mourn for Saul after he had lost the kingship. 
And the commentator I was reading, this guy called Dale Ralph Davis, wrote this. He said, was there not something proper in Samuel's grief? Was he, uh, he was not upset over a, lou- a lousy bowling score or because someone had sideswiped his car or because he had only a, a three-bedroom house. Rather, he was distressed over the spiritual disaster of a promising instrument of God, over the welfare of God's people, over their condition and security. And then he went on to say, do we ever mourn over such matters? Do we mourn or gossip over the sins of others? When we hear about Mark Driscoll and what happens to him, do we inwardly delight or do we mourn? Do we ever sorrow over the unbelief in the churches and among the professional ministry? Do we ever grieve over the biblical and ethical ignorance among professing believers? Does anything ever move us aside from our own comfort and security? And then Dale Ralph Davis says, there is something commendable, instructive in Samuel's distress. That's what the Apostle Paul did. Rather than becoming angry and upset with the sin he feared the Corinthians were committing, Paul was filled with a deep and a profound grief. He was particularly afraid that when he returned to Corinth again, he wouldn't find them as he wanted them to be. And they wouldn't find him as they wanted him to be. That rather than being a loving harmony, there would be this horrible division. A spiritual, or spirit rather, of animosity that manifests itself in quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. Paul was afraid that he'd be humbled by the church he had planted rather than being spiritually mature. They would be giving in to the lusts of the flesh. To impurity, sexual sin and debauchery. But here's the key. Loving leadership always mourns rather than secretly delights in the failures of others. Loving leadership always mourns rather than secretly delights in the failures of others. Paul could have been harsh. He could have been judgmental. He could have self-righteously scoffed at their struggle, at their various besetting sins. But rather than mock, the Apostle Paul is frightened that he'll have to mourn. Mourn that they were not growing in godliness. Mourn that they were not putting the lusts of the flesh to death. Mourn that they were not relating to him with the same commitment of love as he was relating to them. Loving leadership mourns. But with that said, notice that what Paul also describes loving leadership as also being in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 13. You see, you could be forgiven for thinking that love never says the hard things. But that's just not the case. Indeed, that's not love. It's actually a form of hate. Because love cares enough about a broken relationship with the other person to confront. To seek to work through the problems so that the fellowship can be truly restored. Significantly, the way the Apostle Paul does this is not by being hasty, 
but by establishing the truth of a situation through a number of visits. He doesn't deal with the problem straight away because reconciliation is not one, not necessarily a one-off event, but an ongoing process. It's based on the very biblical and helpful principle that every matter must be established by the testimony of at least two or three witnesses. Because loving leadership is not only careful, but it also cares enough to confront. It cares enough to want to know what really happened from both sides of the story and hence to truly sort things out. Sadly, too many relationships remain broken because both parties choose the easy way out of not talking about the issues. It happens in marriage and it also happens in churches. Our fellowship with other believers can remain fractured Sometimes for years and years and years because one or either party never loved one another enough to confront. One of the things about what makes this so difficult is we tend to think that problems should never be addressed. And let's face it, it's a bit like cleaning out an infected wound. It hurts like crazy when you open it up. Even worse... I think a lot of leaders think that we should just leave things alone. That love always means somehow or other inaction. But Paul is really clear here that he will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. That when he returns to Corinth, he will not be weak in dealing with them, but strong. Because while he boasts about his own weakness, he also relies on Christ's strength. And as the perfect example of what loving leadership looks like, the Lord Jesus himself confronts sin, doesn't he? I uh, just think of what he says to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He constantly calls on them to repent. He warns them that if they don't, For instance, he himself will come against them and fight against them with the sword of his own mouth. Or he threatens to remove their lampstand if they don't return to their first love. Is that not loving? This is going to sound shocking, but sometimes the Lord Jesus brings the life of a church to an end. And it's the most loving thing he could do. And the doors are not closed because the gospel has failed, but rather because the Lord's people have not been truly faithful to their calling to love him. If you're still not convinced by what I'm saying, then just take a look at what Paul says next in verses 5 and 6. Because not only does Paul confront the Corinthians about what's going on, he challenges them as well. Verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Once again, this is what loving leadership looks like. For in the context of Paul's letter, he's challenging them to see where they're at in terms of their own walk with the Lord. 
Loving leadership doesn't back away from saying this kind of thing because the goal of that sign of leadership is to see people grow to maturity in Christ. And what that will often mean is that we need to love one another enough to say the hard things. Even to the point of asking if our faith in the Lord Jesus is in fact genuine as Beck and as Lauren confessed this morning. The painful reality was that the Corinthians were seeing how Paul measured up. Was he charismatic enough? Was he successful enough? Was he like anything like the so-called super apostles? Was he impressive enough? But Paul says that's actually the wrong question. The real question is whether the Corinthians themselves were truly in the faith. Had they been born again? Were they keeping in step with the Spirit and living a life of love and of holiness? Or was their behavior more in keeping with the fallen nature of sinful flesh? Once again, Paul wants to lovingly lead them to spiritual maturity in Christ. He doesn't say this because he hates them. He says it because he loves them. It's the most helpful thing they could hear. He wants them to see, he wants them to, to see if their identity is truly in Christ. And he wants to comfort them. All of which brings us to the final truth, which brings all of these points together, and that is loving leadership praise. And can I just say, not just any kind of prayer. The prayer that Paul prays for the Corinthians is really quite incredible, especially when viewed in the light of all of the pastoral problems that he'd had with them. Because regardless of all that has happened, Paul prays in verse 9 for their perfection. Just take a look at what he says in verse 7. He says, now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. Now, as a Christian leader myself, this verse really challenges me. Because what it's saying is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people think of me or my ministry. All that matters is how are people going spiritually. Are they following Jesus? Is their relationship with God stronger than it was before? That's what really counts. Not how popular I am or what people think of my ministry. Paul says at the start of verse 9 that this is why he doesn't mind being weak as long as they are strong. In fact, he's even glad. Because like a parent, he'll do anything for the benefit of his children. He'll endure all kinds of personal sacrifices if it just if it means that they're doing okay. That's not just what being a parent, but also what loving Christian leadership is like. Jesus Church here at Cornerstone, I think, has gone through some really challenging times over the past couple of months. And in the providence of God, I think it's been really timely that we've been going through this particular part of God's word. And how Paul concludes his second letter to the Corinthians is, I think, exactly what Jesus wants to say to us this morning. The NIV softens this a little bit. So let me read to you from a more literal translation so you gain a fuller sense of the meaning. If you're reading the ESV, you'll see this. 
You know the ESV stands for, right? Eastern Shore version. <laughs> Just because it gives more light than all the other versions. In all seriousness, verse 11 literally says this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Not just goodbye, but rejoice. That is, put your faith and hope in God by rejoicing. And then he says this, aim not just for perfection, but the Greek word is actually more specific than that, aim for restoration. The Greek word that that Paul uses here in the New Testament is what is most often used in the Gospels when it describes the apostles or the, the disciples mending their nets. They were perfecting their nets. They were restoring their nets. Which means that Paul is saying that we shouldn't just simply aim for individual perfection of righteousness, as good as that is. We're not just to be perfect in that way. The perfection that Paul is talking about here, friends, is that is really profoundly relational. What you might say is horizontal. Aim for interpersonal perfection. In other words, be active in mending relationships which are broken. That's a word we need to hear. Because nets don't just mend themselves. It's not enough to go, well, the net's broken, I just won't tear anymore. Maybe if I ignore it and put it to the side, it'll be okay. To be active, to be conscious, to be deliberate, to be intentional about mending nets, that's what Christ is calling us to do. That's why he goes on to say, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace. Be a peacemaker not a peace faker, because that is the fruit of the gospel. It creates both a vertical as well as a horizontal unity. The reconciliation which Jesus achieves is truly and wonderfully cross-shaped, you see? And so as we seek to be peacemakers, the God of love and peace will himself be with us in profound ways. We will be sons and daughters of God because that's what God did. He first took the initiative even while we were still enemies, even while we were still dead in our sins. God took the initiative to make us alive in Christ. So if we are in Christ, we will do the same. We will be imitators of Christ. Because our fellowship with one another I think actually impacts on our experience of our fellowship with God himself. That's why even why uh, we should do practical things like greet one another by name or, as Paul says here, with a holy kiss because we truly love one another. I put the passage, if you have your corner post there, turn to the front, please. I put the passage from 1 Corinthians 13 on the front of the corner post this week because I think it's precisely the kind of challenge we need. You know, it often gets used at weddings. And let's face it, that's nice. But it's really out of context. It's got nothing really to do with marriage. It's got everything to do with right now, church. Of not giving up on one another. 
but continuing to hope and trust and persevere. That's what love looks like. Loving leadership tries to win the person. And you don't have to be an elder or to, or, uh, to put this into practice because there, it, the initiative always starts with us. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all kinds of entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. That's what true love looks like. It means that we're prepared to risk and so open ourselves up to being hurt all over again. The final thing to say before I close in prayer is that we are sustained, brothers and sisters, by God's grace. That's the final word of blessing which Paul gives us, isn't it? It's that God's grace is with us and is sufficient to sustain us from beginning to end. We start following Jesus by grace and that's how we continue to follow Jesus as well. So let me conclude with the words of the Apostle Paul. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you and praise you that you love us so deeply. We are blown away, Lord, by the truth of your word and its pertinence to us. Lord, you loved us even while we were your enemies and walking away from you. You reached out to us. You took the initiative. And so, Father, we pray that by your grace we will do the same. We pray that we will be active in mending nets. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would keep us from pride, from self-righteousness, from anger or resentment, and that you would do a great work of grace in each and every one of our hearts. Because we know, Lord, that's what we have first received in the gospel. Lord, this day we meet with you, the true and living God, and we look to your throne in heaven and we ask for an extra anointing and power of your spirit to live in a way that pleases and honours you. May we be the church, may we be the fellowship that you want us to be. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.